Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm super excited, Nick, for for this conversation today. And today we're going to talk about many things, in particular your experience as a TED speaker, not a TEDx speaker, an actual <laughs> TED speaker. And for our listeners today, I think pretty much everybody knows the difference. But just in case some of our listeners don't, you have TEDx events, and these are events organized independently they are like ted style events independently organized and then you have the actual ted event so if somebody has an opportunity to give a tedx talk that's great a great opportunity but a ted talk is a different level so nick is a ted speaker nick you gave a great ted talk in 2020 the happy planet index yeah 2010 Uh, 2010. What did I say? 2020, but it's 2020. 2020. Oh, 2010. No, no, 2010. <laughs> yeah, I meant to, I had 2010 in my in my head, and I'd like to start with a curiosity because in that talk, again, that was 2010. So I don't know if things have changed, but you say that Costa Rica was the happiest country on the planet. I don't know if you have the information now, but if you do, is this still the case, or has anything changed? Well, there's a slight nuance, right? Because the Happy Planet Index is not a straight measure of national happiness. It's it's a sustainability indicator. And basically, its metric is that nations should produce good lives that don't cost the earth. So the Happy Planet Index becomes effectively an efficiency index. It's about how efficient are nations at transforming resources into good lives for citizens. And in that sense, Costa Rica, I mean, here's the interesting comparison. Costa Rica, people are happier than they are in the USA. They live longer than the people in the USA, but they use about a quarter of the resources to get there. So they're sort of four times more efficient to producing good lives. And that's what wins the Happy Planet Index. Very strictly speaking, the happiest nations in the world tend to move around Scandinavian Nordic countries. So we see Finland, I think, topping it at the moment, but we have previously seen Denmark, Norway, Switzerland does well. But on pure happiness measures, they're slightly happier. But the very interesting thing about Costa Rica is on a much lower GDP per capita and uh, lower resource use, they generate very, very similar quality of life for its citizens. And in the... In the Happy Planet Index, are they still on on top? They are still on the top. We did another index which used just pre-COVID data, 2019 data. We released it. We're hoping to do a new index after the pandemic has struck, uh, probably next year and release it. It's a sort of side project for me now. I still work with one of my original colleagues on it. And uh, we, we, we put out the index every, well, we'd like to do it every two years, but it's been every three, four recently. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And Nick, I don't know about you, but what, because you are a, stati- a statistician, and when I think about statistics and TED talks or like communication speaking in general, I can't not think about Hans Rosling. Yes. And for those, again, for listeners, for those, for those of you who don't know who Hans Rosling is. He was a physician, academic, public speaker. I think Nick, when it comes, when it came to communicating data and statistics, and also telling the story behind the data, because it's not from a communication perspective, it's never just the data; it's the story behind the data, it's the meaning of the data. And I think that Hans Roslick was one of the best, if perhaps not the best, communicator from that perspective. Now, I don't have a question here, but just from from your perspective as a statistician if i say hans roslick and his work what do you think yeah no i think he's great i'm sure i've got his book there factfulness on my shelf and actually his book isn't really as good as his ted talks because what he made the data do was to sing he used to say i like to make the data sing and to come alive and the and the and the brilliant thing he did was he he made time series with the graphs moving so you could see where they were moving and you know he he, there's only so much data you can hold in one graph 
but he held life expectancy. Then he had the population, which was a bubble increasing in size as the population grew. And then he had the years flowing. And so the date, the, 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 yeah, the graphs literally sang, really. They really came, came alive. I mean, there's still, you know, you've still got debate what those politically mean and what the, what the actions that lead from it are. Um, but he was also, he was just, a, he was a huge extrovert. He was hugely charismatic. You know, there's one of his TED Talks, he swallows a sword on stage. Uh, another one, he uses absolutely no grasp, but uses boxes, which I think was actually genius, genius way of doing it. So he he, he was very, very clever um, in it. And um, I mean, sadly, he died for, far too young, actually. Um, but um, I, I certainly had seen his TED Talk before and I, I didn't have the resources to use the sort of software he had, but I did get one of my graphs, a couple of my graphs to move in sort of... Uh, honor of him or, or inspired by him you know because that does make the data talk better yeah you you, tr you also tried to make the data sing i love i love that that phrase to, to make the data sing that's great and going back to your ted talk instead the happy planet index again I mean, more than two maybe two and a half million people more than that have seen it already for those who haven't would you like to tell us the the gist of of that talk yeah, so the Happy Planet Index was an idea that I came up with in about 2005, published in 2006. And my frustration with um, the sustainability movement, which I certainly would consider myself a part of, was they tend to focus on how bad everything is. And and the idea of my talk was to, was to say that, um, you know, yes, fear draws attention, but we actually have to have a vision about where we're going. I think this holds just as well today as any time. In fact, but even more, you know, I think we're seeing people becoming more fatalistic around what's happening around climate. And it's very depressing if we think the world is basically coming to an end almost. I mean, you know, I, I had a talk in with one of my son's friends at the weekend, you know, over a beer and he, his feelings, he doesn't want to have children. He feels the world is in a really bad state and there's nothing he can do about it. And there's that sort of helplessness with it. And really what I want to do with the Happy Planet Index is to say that actually, politically, we need to have a way of thinking about how lives are going to continue to get better. And we have a slightly crazy obsession with economic growth, that we think it's the only way that lives get better. But, you know, if you can create good lives, and that by that, I mean, strictly speaking, statistically, that they're happy and they're long. So you have life expectancy as an objective data, uh, data source and how happy people are, which is what we call a subjective data, and you merge those into happy life years, then that's a vision because who can't buy into the vision that we should live good long lives? You know, there's no point living unhappy long lives and there's no point living happy short lives well there's probably even more value in happy short lives than unhappy long ones actually for me but but that's the trade-off but then you know we've got to look at how we use the you know the planetary resources that we have and so that was the idea of the happy planet index to do that and was to shake up both the economic crowd who think they've got the only measure of progress and also the sustainability crowd in that actually we need to imagine we've lost our ability to dream you know we think the world is and, and i I'm an optimist, yes, um, sometimes an unrealistic optimist, probably. But also, I, I think if we're going to tackle these problems, I mean, we have it right now, you know, the, the COP27 is on at the moment. We have, you know, net zero, you know, sounds like a good aspiration, but it does have the word zero in there. It does sound like we're doing nothing. How do we create a positive vision about it? And so that's really what the Happy Planet Index was doing. That's what I tried to communicate in my talk it's obviously a statistical instrument that I'm talking about, which just by definition is dull. So to get that across in a talk, you have to tell stories. And so I told stories and, and, and I'm still very proud of the first line I came up with, which was that Martin Luther King didn't have a nightmare. He had a dream. And, and I, I, I as a speaker, I, I needed, you know, I was a very nervous speaker, obviously on that day, I needed to get a laugh out of my audience very early. And when they laughed at that, like four seconds into my talk, I thought I was okay. And and by the way, Nick, one of the things I really liked about your talk is that you started with something. In that case, it was a sort of a quote or paraphrasing a quote from Martin Luther King. And then you developed your ideas. And then at the very end, you went back to, to the same quote and it's not the only way to go about it but it's a great way to 
develop a, a storyline for a presentation. You start with something, it could be a quote, an analogy, a story, an anecdote. You develop your ideas and then, and then at the end you go back to it. That's, for example, what they do with movies. Or not, not all the time, but often. A movie starts with something and then the whole movie goes. And then at the very end, sometimes in the last scene, they go back to the very first scene. And only at the end do you understand, ah, that's why the movie started this way. So that was a very powerful technique. Well done. You, I think you want to mention something here. Well, I mean... It was the first talk I had coaching for and um, I worked with a lovely coach called Mary Murphy and she was, um, I'm not sure I'm going to quite, Toastmaster, is that the name of the, yep. yeah, she was a Toastmaster um, coach and speaker and, you know, when you're creating a talk, you can structure it in lots of different ways and and we went over lots of different structures and and, you know, I actually, the first time I had the Martin Luther King quote in the middle and she suggested we take it to the front and we bookend with it. And the way that she described it to me was that when you start saying Martin Luther King at the end, people will know you're wrapping up the talk and it will make them feel safe that there's an ending and a summary coming to it. So it was a technique I learned from her for that talk. And it's obviously something I've done with talk since because it's a very strong technique. But it wasn't something I thought about before that talk, actually. Yeah, it gives it gives it, for the audience it gives a nice sense of completion, and yes, developing a, an interesting and engaging storyline from the very beginning where you want to capture the audience's attention to the very end, that's that's a, a crucial way for you, for a speaker to be able to keep their attention, gain it, and and keep it high throughout the the presentation. Now, what I like to do, Nick, let's see how much time we have but i'd like to look at your your experience as a ted speaker first by thinking about what happened before the the presentation the talk and then your experience during the talk itself and then also after the talk what was the impact if there was an impact so first of all how did you end up on a ted stage again we're not talking about a tedx stage how did it work for you? How did you end up on that stage? So we put out the Happy Planet Index in 2006. It had got a lot of attention across the media. It was the first global index of happiness, though quite a lot of people missed it. it was sustainable happiness we're talking about. They just talked about. It. So we got a lot of attention to that. And somewhere along the line, it, it blipped the radar of the European director of TED. I, I, I'm pretty sure that he read an article about it in Prospect magazine. We had an article in Prospect magazine. He was reading on an airplane or whatever he was doing about his thing. And, and they had a theme to the 2010 Global One. Can't quite remember what it was. It was about something about optimistic futures or something. And um, and one day out of the blue, I just got an email saying this is Bruno Giuseppe, I think his name was from Ted Europe. Maybe, uh, maybe, sorry, Nick, maybe, yeah, Bruno Giuliani, maybe. Uh, yes, that's yeah. his name. Yeah. Bruno Giuliani. Yes, that's it. Sorry for my mashing of Italian surnames. Uh, I think he was Swiss, actually. Anyway, he he um, he he emailed me and he said that, you know, he'd read it and, you know, did I want to have a meeting? Did I know anything about TED Talks? And yes, I did know from TED Talks. You know, he very clearly in the email said, this is not an offer of a TED Talk. This is an offer to have a conversation about doing a TED Talk. And so then we arranged to meet for a coffee. We met in a coffee uh, place in St. James's Park in London. I can, if I still walk past this little place in St. James's Park, it's sort of like a tourist coffee shop in the park. I just remember this meeting because I'd never been to this coffee shop before. It's like sort of, yeah, one of those ones in a public park had nice glass windows and I didn't really know who I was looking for, but anyway, he recognized me straight away and we had a coffee together and within 45 minutes of talking, he'd said, yes, I'd like you to do a Ted talk. You know, I, I of course he wants to check out whether I, I could be a talker. Have I got enough charisma? Have I got enough passion about the subject? And um, yeah, so then the offer came, he, he made the offer straight over that cup of coffee. And then of course I panicked, you know, because, <laughs> because, you know, I, I worked in a, in a small think tank with small budgets, you know, we, we produced the first happy planet index on a budget of 25,000 pounds 
you know, we are not big hitters. And and you suddenly knew this was a communication opportunity, which was which was very big. And so, um, you know, and I had six months before to sort of think about it. And I I I thought about it for six months. I mean, I obviously did other work, but, you know, I would I can remember I used to stay at my father's flat in London when I was in London. And I used to, if I was there early in the evening on my own, I just stand up at the coffee table and pretend to do a talk. And it went through many, many iterations before it ended up where it was. And, you know, what stories did I do? Who did I want to thank in it? Who did I want to, you know, nod to? And, you know, and then you, you just have to keep cutting, cutting, cutting. Yeah, and we'll go there because this is very relevant to the theme of these podcasts. But before we do, are there, in case there is anything else, for those who dream of getting on a TED stage, and by the way, it could be the actual TED stage, it could be a TEDx stage, because I've seen, Nick, that in addition to the TED talk in 2020, 2010, 2010 sorry i don't know why i keep saying 2020 2010 you also gave a few other tedx talks maybe before and after so do you have any any tips do's and don'ts for those who are interested in getting on a ted or tedx stage so i have absolutely no um influence with ted about who they choose and, and in fact it's probably a little mysterious process and I'm, I'm not sure exactly fair sometimes because I can see people who I think's work has been brilliant who are great speakers who haven't been on there and other people who I think's works not great and is on there so it's hard to know how they exactly choose TEDx's are I you know I, I obviously get got asked to do a few TEDx's afterwards because they quite like having a TED speaker as one of the people in it and I, I did a few and um and there were some good ones. There were some very good TEDx's. And I think the way to get attention of TED is to do a very brilliant TEDx. And that, that's really my only advice. And to choose a good TEDx. I, I don't know where they look at every talk. I know that they've looked at every talk of mine because um, there was one they started talking about putting on the TED.com, which is where it starts to really break through. And uh, they chose not to. Um, and, and, and I did get a little feedback from them about what wasn't quite right about it and and that was helpful um so i i think they do they do look at it and obviously some tedx's i mean you know simon senex was a tedx and it's one of the biggest watches one so you know the, they uh they they can be absolutely huge and also i would say that being on the ted.com the ted stage does not guarantee you that it goes on the ted.com so there were several people who I heard speak live in 2010 and I went to another couple of TED conferences too who never made it to the website either their either their their narrative didn't get through the academic uh, filters which they did start putting on it just wasn't a good enough talk um so that must be crushingly disappointed to be asked to TED and then not get on ted.com so um so don't it's not a guarantee if you speak at TED conference you go on the website and you're right going back to the the example of simon sinek everybody assumes that there was a ted talk because it's mm. a huge talk everybody knows about it but yeah you're right it was a tedx talk yeah. yeah yeah and now talking about the the preparation so you said mm. that you had six months and you already mentioned something rehearsing in your dad's flat mm. and panicking a little bit as well, cutting some material. Tell us a little bit more. Anything that you think could be useful for listeners in terms of the actual preparation for, for their experience? I mean, it's hard to remember exactly how I went about the process, but I, I, I started early with trying to think about what story could hold, hold, hold the talk I wanted to give, you know, Clearly, I was asked to give a talk on the Happy Planet Index. So my main focus was on that. And I I went through several narratives. I then decided I clearly needed a business coach. I knew Mary a little bit. And so I, I talked with her and we started thinking, you know, doing what you do like when you write a book really is like, what is your main idea? What is your audience you're trying to influence? uh you know what's what where will they be because obviously you need to start from where they are rather than where you are you know i you know i i, I can give a two-hour technical talk on the statistics behind the happy planet index but it wouldn't be appropriate for a ted so you know what was i trying to achieve with the talk and, and those sort of things and then 
you know, actually, although I was in the days of 18 minute TED talks, it's still not a very long time. And you have to have a very tight structure to your talk. So we worked a lot on the structure. Um, you you have to do this thing of, we called it killing your darlings, but you had to get rid of the things that you'd love to say, but didn't actually fit in your theme. So there was a lot of cutting away that went on. Um, I I did insist on putting, I had this other work I did, which is called the five ways to well-being, which I go through in the TED talk, which is basically what are the ways to live happier lives. And I did insist on those being in. Uh, I don't know when I look at the narrative structure, I think it works. You know, I, possibly I should have cut that out too. You know, you're still with that sort of question there. But um, so we created a structure for me to do the happy plan, to include the five ways and 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 do that and so I, I I guess there's just a lot of lot of editing and a lot of rehearsing and I, I think you can tell the TED talks that really work well is that they look spontaneous but actually that means there's been a lot of rehearsing so true. and you know so I I knew but by the time I was getting towards the stage you know I knew where I needed to be at eight minutes 30 I knew where I needed to be at 12 minutes 20 I knew where I needed to be there were certain slide changes that I was doing I, I knew roughly where I was and by the end you know I wasn't really thinking about the clock I knew I had a you know a, a talk uh, in the right time so I didn't have every sentence planned I guess kind of I reached for one of two or three sentences in a few places and um so so it wasn't scripted totally uh, that's how i tried to keep it you that's, know that's exactly the the approach i would recommend I, I say to to my clients for example you don't have to unless it works for you but you don't have to memorize a talk again unless you are a memorizer because you have some 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 speakers who love to to memorize to follow it word for word but definitely you have to internalize it. And it sounds like that that's what you've done, Nick. You've internalized your content, which means that you knew, even if you didn't memorize it, but you knew exactly pretty much what to say and when the structure was there. And uh, and this is crucial. You're, you're right. Often we look at great talks, great speakers, and we think, wow, it's so simple for that speaker. It must come natural to them. And now the, the, the most important thing that any great presenter does is they, they rehearse, they practice. Mm. That makes a big difference. And now you talked about killing your darlings. Mm. And so, because I wanted to ask you that question, the importance of cutting, editing, removing, getting to the core of what it is that you want to communicate. So when you told me before this conversation, you said that perhaps there was one more thing that you could have cut, but you didn't do it. That was the five suggestions at the end, yeah. right? Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I have I mean, to say, looking at your talk, now that you say, okay, I get it, but I didn't say it as something that you've added that perhaps shouldn't be there. To me, it made sense. Normally, I'm a big fan of cutting, removing stuff. I think your decision about what you remove is often more important about your decision about what you what you leave in yeah. in your case i think you talk about the happy planet index you talk about this idea and then you leave the audience with some practical things either to do or to consider if they want to be happy so to me it made sense yeah i, I think it did I, I just remember you know it was we were certainly playing with the structure with it in with it out and and how it, how it would work i i i felt like well, it's, it's the piece of work there's 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 only three pieces of work over my whole career which i still which i just love you know happy planet is one five ways is the other and uh, the other is what i do now which is about measuring team happiness but it's like because you do lots of work and lots of reports and at the time you get them out there and you think they're great but i mean those three over the last 20 five years or whatever I've worked in this field it's like those are the ones I still think are so I really wanted to get it in there so anyway that was just I remember it was debate at the time and and we and we, we I was obviously totally with including it but it's the only it's the bit where you start thinking oh you know should I not have that in there and and then um and I also had to be a bit savvy you know I I worked in the think tank you know our our, our we're always a little you know it was always tricky getting funding whatever so you know i mentioned the think tank i, 
actually put in one line there about a piece of work I was just starting there about businesses that you know you can create happy sustainable businesses and actually that's what I mainly do now and I I quite strategically left that sentence in there you know because it was it was to open up a, a, a possible path of work for me I don't know whether it helped at all but I, I did that you know so you, you have to think very carefully what you want to have in there particularly when you're working as TED format you know and of course because, it's got yeah. shortened now to 12 minutes or six minutes and I think that's good but it's like it's even more so oh, you're right you need to be strategic about it, especially uh, on TED you can't they tell you can't it's not an opportunity for you to sell your your stuff no. but yeah you can be strategic about it and also you talk you, you were talking about rehearsing just out of curiosity do, do you remember how, roughly how many times did you rehearse for that talk I mean you know obviously ramped it up towards the end I mean I I um I was certainly rehearsing it twice a day in the week before mm. um uh, I was with my partner at the time and um you know she would go through it with me and I did a rehearsal on stage the day before which was really bad went badly Chris Anderson was there and he, you know he critiqued me about something and I felt you know but it was interesting I think when you're rehearsing without a crowd it's very difficult you know I was nervous and and I think what I was trying to do was to get this talk out of the back of my head and I was re leaning back of course, with an audience, one naturally leans forward and feeds off the energy of the audience. So it's quite different experience. But there's a time when you're giving a talk, if you're thinking too much about what your sentence is, you know, your eyes can go up into your head and you can start thinking here. And, you, and then that makes you feel disengaged from the audience. And that was what Chris Anderson said to me the night before. I was absolutely furious with his um, feedback at the time. And um, because I felt like you know, how is he helping me? It wasn't, you know, I just felt like, you know, why, why are you saying something like that? But, you know, I talked it through with my partner and, um, you know, and we, we sort of understood what he was saying and, and it sort of reminded me about feeling grounded on the day of the talk and which were things I was already thinking about, but, you know, I think I didn't feel grounded at the rehearsal. It was very busy. There was lots of, you know, stage crew around, you were flipping between people it wasn't the real thing it was just to get you on the spot to understand where you were standing and things like that so um it wasn't actually a real experience because i'm was already an experienced speaker and you 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 wait in the wings and you you get the nervous energy and you go out there and then you you know so it was it was quite a different experience than the rehearsal was a very different experience than it was going to be so i sort of forgave myself that i was perhaps leaning back too much and yeah. and i i I'm happy with my delivery as a talk. Um, yeah. Certainly, and as I look back on it. For our listeners, Chris Anderson is just in case you don't know him, is the curator of yes of yeah. TED, and he's also the author of TED Talks, the book TED Talks, which is the official guide to TED Talks, TED yeah. TED, TED speaking. And you mentioned a very useful concept. Now, you, not only did you rehearse at home, but and of course, they they want you to do that. But as a principle, we should always try to do something similar. You also rehearse there on stage the day before. And what great speakers do, it doesn't have to be a TED talk, but in general, great speakers, and this is for our listeners, rehearse in the real world, in an environment, if possible, which is as close as possible to the actual environment you will have in the real presentation. That could be if the actual physical environment, like in your case, but if it's not possible, at least a mental, if we can call it this way, a mental environment, which is as close as possible to the real situation. So that's another thing it's another thing to highlight. And um, Nick, tell us also a little bit about your experience during the talk. So at some point they call you, it's your turn and you go there the famous red dot how you also mentioned maybe a little bit of anxiety tell us more how did you feel well i wouldn't be human if i wasn't a little anxious about what you i mean the, the, the pressure with the ted talk is it's not just a talk it's a video it's a one-shot video that's the pressure of it and so and you also know it's the video that defines your career certainly up until that point so not just a little bit of pressure, you know, and also I had an idea that I was passionate about that I wanted to communicate to the world. So there was the responsibility. I mean, in the end, the loyalty is to my, it's just the idea, not to me, Nick, it's the idea that's the, the king here. So 
and that's what ted is supposed to be ideas worth spreading so i was very committed to spreading the idea that we had so um i as i said just earlier it's about i think it's about feeling grounded and i'm very much someone that believes that you should feel your feet on the floor as you start to make a talk so that you don't lift up and sort of elevate you you stay grounded and so i wore my favorite shoes which were a pair of Johan Cruyff trainers which I picked up in Amsterdam on a rainy afternoon and I loved these trainers and uh, I work for a think tank you know I'm not you know so wearing jeans and a jacket is a perfectly appropriate thing and trainers so I wore all my favorite trainers and I did and I, I sometimes say when people say to you about talk I say wear your favorite shoes you know wear something that makes you feel comfortable you know particularly your shoes because that's what connects you to the earth so you know that's always one of my tips to speakers wear good shoes wear your favorite shoes feel your feet on the ground and press down on the ground as you get there and then not to rush so my partner at the time um she wasn't british she was she was scandinavian norwegian and and she said to me that most people will listen to you in a second language on a ted stage that english won't be their first language and she very much critiqued a lot of american speakers for speaking too fast so she was very into the slow down, which was an important thing I did in, in my talk and not speak too quickly and leave spaces and for the audience to catch up with where you are. So um, I just, you know, tried to pace it. And then, as I said, you know, I knew I, I knew I had a joke to make very early. That was for me. It's one of the ways I feel an audience is on my side. If they laugh with me, it, it makes me feel good, gives you that energy back. So when I got that laugh at the right time and you don't want the laugh at the wrong time do you? you want the laugh at the right time you know that martin luther king didn't say he had a nightmare he said he had a dream and you know uh, i i'd heard someone else vaguely say something similar to that about three or four years earlier in a little little conference in wales and i i went up to him and thought, that's such a clever idea to use that idea of dreams and nightmares and i i um you know, and clearly it's quite shameless to reach to Martin Luther King. You know, he's one of the greatest orators ever. And you're trying to have some of that glory come upon you. But I think I did use him respectfully. I mean, I we, we did talk about, you know, not using him and everything like that. And um, I know that Bruno said to me about two years later, I've told people no one's allowed to use Martin Luther King anymore. You know, he said Nick did it well and this person did it badly, you know, but. So I, I I think I did it in the right spirit. And I was, I know I was the first person to use that phrase on a big stage. I'm sure other people will look at it and go, oh, I've had that idea because we do. But uh, and I and no idea is ever entirely original. But, um, you know, it was in context, you know, and I talked about and I, I was talking about nightmares and dreams. That was what my talk was about. Are we going towards a nightmare of the future? Can we dream a better vision one? So it was appropriate. And when I got that laugh, I just felt the energy and I eased and and there were places in the in the talk where I wanted to bring the audience back to me. So Mary was very good at this coaching with me where she she said, you need to bring it back to you as a statistician. So there's a point I can't remember quite where it is in the talk where I said, because Robert Kennedy was another big person I used. I used the, his quote on GDP, which is something that myself and uh, particularly a guy I work with called Professor Tim Jackson have used for many years about the idea of his speech in, in Kansas in 1968, where he talked about uh, GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. And I, and instead of just quoting him, I said, if Kennedy was alive today, he would be asking statisticians like me how you measured the worth of everything so i brought it from kennedy back to me so trying to ground it with these people so same with martin luther king you know i also have a, you know i have a dream and in fact i only wrote that second line in the two days before the talk you know i was still playing with the lines in it you know and i said you know i have a dream and i have a dream that we can stop thinking the future is a nightmare so i played on that theme and i so i i guess i felt i got the audience on my side i felt grounded and and i brought it tried to bring the energy back out of the figures back into personal stories like what does a statistician do with his career you know he tries to make measurement that that is worth something that is measuring something worthwhile so that was how i sort of wove it back into my story um i i think nowadays i do tell more stories about me than i did then i was younger i also felt a great responsibility of the idea you know i, I had my whole think tank sort of cheering me on behind me and you know and so it was like it, i i probably went you know into the big video i think now i do tend to take it back more to us 
in my talks than, than perhaps that talk is does. Thank you very much for, for sharing your experience and lots of practical tips as well. And, and I'd like to highlight some of the things you've mentioned because they're very relevant, very important. For anybody who's interested in public speaking, presentation skills, communication. So at the end, you mentioned personal stories, absolutely anecdotes, storytelling in general, very powerful, as long as, of course, they make a point. It's not about ourselves. It's not storytelling is not about telling stories for the sake of telling a story. We want to use a story, an example, an anecdote, because it makes a point. And people will remember the story and what that means. That's really useful. Also, you mentioned being grounded. Absolutely. So we want to feel the weight of our body being equally balanced on, on mm. both legs as we start and also during the talk. So that's another thing that you've mentioned, really useful. And also posing, slowing down. Every time we do that, for example, when we pose before or after a key word or a key phrase, first of all, we give the audience time to think about what we've just said, especially, as you said, Nick, if we are talking about an international audience. Hmm. We also give ourselves, as the presenter, time to, time to think about what to say next, what to show next, what to do next. And also, every time we pose, that increases the impact of what we've just said. So another practical tip there. Thank you, Nick. And let's talk about, so, so far we looked at how to get, at least from your experience, on a TED stage or TEDx stage. We talked about your preparation. We talked about your experience during the talk. Let's talk about after the TED talk. How did it work for you? Was there um, any any impact? And if so, what what was it? Yeah, I mean, it's in some ways it's a, it's a mixed story afterwards, you know. Um, so I'm actually just writing a book at the moment, and and I'm starting with the end of my TED talk as the start of the book, and 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 because the funny thing was that I I got to the end, and I looked down at the clock. They have this clock on the on the thing here. And it said, I can stay posted 17 minutes, 20. And it should have been, in my opinion, 17 minutes, 55, because I should have done exactly 18, right? And uh, and the first thought as people started clapping in my little head was, what have I missed? What have I missed? And 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 they're clapping. And also, I'm in a slightly out-of-body experience at this stage in the sense that this is a big talk. It's not how I am in every talk, but this was such pressure that... I was so in my own zone that I wasn't really able to absorb that applause or, you know, and I, and I was with this, what have I missed? What have I missed? And then, you know, obviously I, I head off stage and they're clapping and it was, it was all fine. And I was very lucky. I was on the first day of the conference. So I could enjoy the rest of the conference. I wasn't on the third day when everyone's tired and I'd been nervous for three days, which would have been, I got it done the first day. That was very lucky scheduling for me. So anyway, that was all good, but but what did I miss is sort of kind of an interesting question that stayed with me in the sense that a talk does not change so much. You know, at the end of the day, you know, here we are 12 years later, we haven't really made any progress on climate of very much significance across the world and Europe. You know, we've still got similar problems. We've still got this bleak future, you know, probably even worse. So I, I, you know, I I have a contribution to make in a very very large area, which is climate. It's quite a depressing thing, you know, and uh, and I I I really started to realize that doing big high level indicators was only going to make so much impact. Uh, I still think it has a place to play, but I decided somewhere in the next sort of two years that I wanted to do something more practical next, something that was closer to people's lives and not so so big. So that, that sort of came through. There's also the question of what happens is that. The TED Talk gives you an opportunity to be a very well-paid public speaker in the US if you're prepared to do the miles. And I I dabbled in that and I didn't like it. I, I didn't mind the dollars, but I just didn't like the feeling that you come somewhere. People have booked you. They sort of had an expectation that you're the entertainment and you know, they're ever so nice to you and it's all a bit fake. And then you get there and you make your talk and you stay in your fancy hotel and then you fly back and whatever. And and I I I, I certainly dabbled in that, but I, I decided it wasn't for me. And of course, people from very good TEDx's have made very good careers as speakers. And I, that's absolutely good. I'm all good with that. 
but it's not me you know i'm still an activist i'm still a statistician and i just and i decided it would be a distraction so so that was an interesting thing which i hadn't expected from the ted and uh, you know i did write one of the first ted books and that sold a good number of copies it was just a, it's not actually available anymore um because it was just a kindle edition and it's out of print uh, they, they decided to take it down but if anybody wants a copy they can link with me in and i'll send them a copy of it it's called the happiness manifesto um but it, but i um you know i i i sort of went for it but i think i probably slightly got ahead of myself about being you know more important than i thought i was i sort of needed to go back to my work and that took me some years to work that out you know because i dabbled around made some money and flew around the world and yeah then it wasn't great it wasn't me so it wasn't for yeah. you it wasn't for you and yeah. a couple of follow-up questions or thoughts i'm curious now did you miss something in the talk or was no. it just i did i i've I looked back at it i looked back at the next well as soon as i had a video of it no that wasn't the next day i, I didn't get a rush of it and they didn't send me a rush of it for two months um they got released quite quickly because i because they do drip them out you know my, i think mine got released in the september and i gave them the talk in june so it was pretty quick um i um i think i spoke very slightly faster Mm, you know i was trying to speak slowly and i think in my rehearsals it's easier and i think just the adrenaline of it i just went a tiny bit faster i don't think i went too fast but i i just think i went a little bit quicker yeah one, one thing we do with our clients nick is we make them during rehearsals not of course during the talk but in rehearsals we make them exaggerate how slow they go we make them exaggerate certain poses and that's not what we want them to do during the talk. But what happens is, especially if you tend to speak a little bit too fast, if you don't exaggerate it when you rehearse, then you lose, most likely because of the adrenaline and the anxiety, yeah. the pressure, you lose that, that important pose. Whereas if you exaggerate it, often that helps you find the right balance during the, the actual experience. I also wanted to ask you, no, I wanted to mention something because you mentioned the, the impact. Now, I totally get what you're saying. It also wasn't for you. I also I appreciate it. I respect it. I do believe, though, that a talk can have it can make a huge impact. And there are there are examples. And again, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Maybe because I'm biased. That's I'm a presentation coach. That's no, that's I, I think. I probably slightly overstated it there, but I think the circuit in the States is different than you know, my TED talk has certainly made an impact. And, and I, I can give talks at conferences, you know, you know, like my 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 work at the moment should be more HR or, or business uh, conferences around, you know, why hap I, I have this phrase happiness is a serious business, why happiness is a serious business and why you should take it seriously in your organization. And I, I think those can do, particularly if you've got things to follow up with. And then there's this sort of circuit that goes on in the States, you know, and, and beyond, you know, which is, you know, we're having, you know, we're EY or we're PwC. We're doing a big conference for our stakeholders. And can you come and do a talk? And I, I, I people haven't come to hear my message. They come for something else. And I'm there that and they pay, pay, you know silly money um i mean i i was only in in league i was only in division two or league one or whatever it is i wasn't in the premier league with it but you know i i, I it was very decent money um that's what i didn't like so if someone I, i'd much rather go into a school and give a free talk which i do you know uh then then go and have a paid one in those sort of um corporate environments i guess that's what i mean really yeah. so i think it depends on on what the event is you know I, I still do talks and i still design them to be impactful but i think that circuit i found a bit soulless yeah oh, i understand and i also nick i'd like to go back to something you mentioned before the feedback you got from i'm changing topics now that's what yes. i like to do in, in conversations the, the feedback you got from Chris Anderson. And, and I have to say, I then in the actual talk, I, I didn't see that from a delivery perspective. I actually liked your delivery. One thing in particular I liked was your facial expressions, your smiling. At some point during the talk, you, you had a smile on your face and it was very much connected to something that you were saying at that particular moment. And often that doesn't happen. 
uh, smiling, it, it's natural for us. We often do it in conversations, but then as soon as the dynamic is a, li a little bit different, either formal or very important, like a TED talk, we tend, whether we are aware of it or not, we become much more serious. We don't smile. We forget to smile. You haven't done it. And, and that allowed you to make, at least looking, watching it on video, I wasn't there, of course, but that allowed you to make a strong connection with the audience. So well done. Yeah, I think that's one of my strengths as a speaker. You know, I, I'm quite present in that moment and I, I do smile a lot. I mean, I've probably done it on this video. It's, it's, it's my natural way of being. And also I have a, I mean, we'd call it in psychology, a Duchenne smile. I have a very authentic smile that I can, could play out. Like, I mean, Julia Roberts, when she's acting, you know, she does this huge beam, which is very hard for an actor to do, you know, because it involves a lot of muscles around the eyes and everything like that. And I, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm quite, um, you know, effervescent as a character. I'm quite charismatic in a way. I mean, you know, and and so I can deliver talks well and I kind of know that and I knew I needed to do that for the TED, you know, in the sense there are some people that can stand there and their sheer brilliance, you know, you can listen to Daniel Kahneman and his sheer brilliance comes through and he's not charismatic at all. But, you know, others of us who are, who are taking an idea, I think if we can use our charisma in service of the idea we're doing, then it, then it's very helpful. Um, no, you're so... right. It's it's not it's not because of when we think about delivery techniques, like we were talking about being grounded, facial expressions, or we could talk about body language, eye contact. It's not because of those things. It's because you're right. Those things help you amplify your idea, your yeah. message. Yeah. Okay, Nick. I think we've got some time to do something a little bit different. And what I mean by that is that I would like to ask you a few questions on the actual content of, of your talk. And what I've done is I, I have a friend here in London. He's an economist. And so okay. I asked him to watch your talk. Yeah, okay. Uh, and I said, do you have it like, from your perspective as an economist, do you have any questions for Nick? And and I'm going to take the question. So I've got a WhatsApp message from him. Okay, okay. And let's see what he said. So just give me a second. Yeah, I need to find it. Yes. So he's got three questions. Let's see if we've got time. Okay. One question is, okay, so he says, again, that comes from the perspective of an economist. He says, yeah, yeah. okay, if you think about what you do, your your job, the Happy Planet Index, now you're doing, you moved on, of course, we're talking about 2010, but happiness in general, how much is that an art and how much is that a science? So one of the things that I try and do as a statistician is to turn feelings into data. And I, I think feelings are data actually naturally for us in the sense that how we feel is giving us a sense of how the world is around us. That's actually what they're doing functionally from a from a from an evolutionary and a in a, in a, in a experiential way. So I try and put numbers on them, not to capture the whole experience, but to help people take them more seriously. So numbers are the language of business, the language of governments. So when I was interested in how do we promote um, well-being and happiness in public policy, which was my main job. Um, my strategy was to put numbers on it. I'm a statistician. I can do that for people to take it more seriously, for it to influence policy, because once you've got a number on it, you can't sort of argue with it. Whereas you can say, oh, how happy is the British population? You know, well, as an economist, he's going to ask compared to what? Well, OK, compared to other people in the world or compared to how they were a few years ago. So I think if you're going to have good data, you need to be able to compare it and you need to have some robustness to it. So can you have a time trend? Can you see changes through time? Is it malleable to public policy? Can you actually change it? So in that sense, there's definitely a science behind it, but we're playing into the realm of human emotion. So in a way, I think it's where art and science match. It's it's kind of why I think there's an aesthetic to what I try and do. So the happy plan is a very simple indicator. It's got a simple, clean aesthetic to it. I've done very complex indicators. People just get lost in the detail. So keeping simplicity helps you keep that side to it. So I think it's it it has a science underneath it, and the way it's communicated probably becomes more of an art. That's probably how I would answer this question. And another question he had is, he says GDP. Because that's connected perhaps to can you remind us what the quote was from so robert kennedy said that g 
he actually said GNP because that's how it's measured this time. GNP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. Yeah. And he says, okay, now GDP metrics have been criticized since pretty much their invention, but we still use them. So then question to you, Nick, are you also a critic? Or how do you feel about it? And, and how do you feel about the way we use it? So GDP, gross domestic product, is basically a measure of economic activity in an economy. So when we talk about GDP growth, we, we mean that more things got sold and bought, exchanged. That is a part of quality of life, but is growth in GDP really associated with a growth in quality of life? You know, because, you know, there's all sorts of anomalies to GDP. So if you go to work and you stop looking after your children and you pay somebody else to look after your children, GDP has gone up. Your children might be having poorer care, might be anything, but GDP has gone up. You know, if there's an oil slick, it costs money to clear it up. GDP goes up. So there's just no way that GDP is necessarily connected to increases in quality of life. The problem we have is that we have a structure of an economy which is entirely dependent on GDP growth. So we see it here in the UK with recession, you know, is awful because, you know, people can't pay their mortgages, you know, and, and debt, the debt society dependent on debt needs GDP growth to basically repay the debt and create value. So it's about value add. So we have a system that's entirely dependent on growth. The issue growth I'd be entirely indifferent to if growth wasn't also associated with material throughput and the issues with the environment. You know, there are people who who I'm actually I could have a critique of it pure from a human side. I just think life has got too fast. I think we're all consuming too much in the sense of, you know, actually, I said to you this before we started, you know, happiness is very relational. Our experience is very relational. And um, I, I, I often say in talks at the moment that I say I would hazard a guess that your most painful experiences in life had been relational. And nearly everybody agrees with me. And the issue is, is that the currency of relationship isn't money, it's time. And I think most of us feel squeezed on time. We're, you know, we're working hard. We're getting tired working, you know, we, 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 we don't feel we have time to do things. We obviously still have whatever it is, 168 hours in a week, 4,000 weeks in our life. It's roughly what we have, yeah? We all have the same amount of time, you know, but we feel time poor. And I think that actually this is where I believe, genuinely believe a happy, sustainable future could be where good lives don't cost the earth is we would slow down just like we do with talks, we would slow down, we would have pauses, we would have gaps, we wouldn't be getting up tired every morning, we wouldn't be just going to work for eight hours, nine hours, coming back tired, we would live more in balance with ourselves and with other people. And that might sound hugely romantic, it might sound hugely idealistic. But why not? Humans haven't always lived like this. This is a very, very modern invention that we live so fast. In getting rapidly so even more. I mean, there's people have much more time just 50, 100 years ago, you know, one, two generations ago. This is not inevitable that we keep speeding up. Yeah. And I think if we're going to become sustainable, we should have more local lives. They can be filled with music and love and wine, hopefully. Hopefully, we don't have to get rid of alcohol. They can be filled with relationships. They can be filled with, you know, artistic projects, with care for our elderly care for our young you know they take time care takes time and and i think that would be a wonderful world now we don't want it to be without you know insulation and warmth we probably still want spotify and netflix and things to entertain us but it wouldn't be a bad life it would i think genuinely think it could be a good life it is not a very likely future but it's a possible future and to me it's something I think we should work towards, you know, creating a world we all want where, where, as I say, good lives don't cost. So I get very I can get quite philosophical about this. And I, you can hear my passion coming through. And the reality is, I think I'm speaking total sense. I genuinely think I'm, and I'm so far off what the norm is about where we're going. That's the thing that makes me sad. I think I am speaking very good human sense about how we could live. And it feels like it's a total fantasy. And that to me is rather tragic. 
So that's where I get angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Last question from The Economist, and then yeah, we'll yeah, wrap yeah. up with a couple of thoughts from my side. The last question is, is there any official, and he highlighted the word official, official metric produced by statistics, I think you call them statistics offices, that you like and and that you think people don't pay enough attention to it? So the UK government, the Office of National Statistics in the UK, have an official measure of population well-being. And it's, it's, it's a good start. Uh, they ask it in the in the labor force and household surveys and we can now see what the well-being of the population is in different regions different types of people i don't think it's nearly enough attention is paid to it so which do you think is the unhappiest region in the uk i wouldn't know Manek. the unhappiest region in I also, I feel a bit scared to, to give an answer here. I don't know. Okay, I'll tell you. It's London. Okay. I, I would have London. said, now that you say that, I would have said maybe somewhere somewhere in the north. It's, it's the opposite. <laughs> okay. So basically, urban people in urban environments tend to be less happy. If we experience inequalities more day to day, we tend to be unhappier. So London has large income inequalities right within the city. It also... It's a very urban, noisy, polluted. We don't have much personal space. So as a general rule, it's better to be poor in the countryside than it is to be poor in the city. And that goes right across the developing world as well. So London is the least happy region. And the happiest region the last time I looked was Northern Ireland, which again is a surprise for people. But recent, recent past troubles, so they actually feel they're better than they were. That's a good thing. More rural. And they're Irish, you know, the Irish are very relational. So, you know, uh, so, you know, there's surprising things in there. Yeah, like what careers are the most happy for people? Well, it tends to be creatives and educators. It doesn't tend to be financial, legal, definitely. Legal, doing a lot of detail, a lot of negativity, you know. So um, I don't think people ask themselves enough of the question about actually what's more likely to make me happier. You know, having children doesn't particularly make you happier doesn't mean say you shouldn't have children but don't think about it it's going to be the answer to all your problems about being happy you know it's it's hard work having children i don't know if you have you got children i just had one like eight weeks old okay it, yeah. it's you, a hard you look... job it's very very hard yeah. <laughs> yeah and of course they're wonderful i mean i, I just you know, my kids are growing up but i spent the weekend with one of my sons it's lovely but it's like it's not it's not easy you know, uh, so so, you know, there's there's lots of things in the data there that I think that it, people will be good. And, and yes, and the UK does have an official well-being statistics. We don't have enough of them. But yeah. Great. Uh, Nick, if you think about everything we talked about, you can answer this question either from the angle of the communication side of things, speaking the TED talk or from the angle of what we talked about at the moment with the three questions from the economist do you have any beyond your own resources and now we're going to include any of your resources in the show notes but beyond your own resources do you have any books maybe one book in particular that you would recommend to our listeners <laughs> i have a lot of books <laughs> and again as you, as you think about it again it could be a book about anything related to communication if you have anything in mind you don't have to of course or it could be a book related to your area of expertise uh i really like a book by a, um, a colleague of mine is an economist he's an economist uh, and, a, and an expert in happiness called paul dolan um and he, he wrote a book called happily ever after and he basically talked about how our myths of, of culture that we have don't necessarily deliver happiness. You know, we think we're going to get married and live happily ever after. Marriage is difficult. You know, and I, I really liked it because he approached it from this sort of angle. It actually hasn't sold as much as his other book called Happiness by Design, but I, I like that as a book. Um, and I, there's, there's quite a lot of happiness books I don't like because I don't think they appreciate the difficulty of, you know, I think we can talk about happiness and actually, you know, like I, I work on happy teams. It's difficult to create a happy team. You know, it sounds very easy, but it's actually difficult. It's just, it's taking time in a 
busy world and, and and doing it so that's why i'm writing a book on that at the moment because i don't feel someone's written the book that i want to read so i'd better write it myself um and um yeah so 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 that would probably be it i don't know i mean i i love some books like i love i can never say his name but david spulharto has written a book called the art of statistics which is very very good you know as a statistician I, I really respect his work he you hear him on on radio four he often talk about risk assessments got a very poor understanding of risk in our public domain you know we talk about oh your chances of getting bowel cancer would increase 20 percent if you have three rashes of bacon a year well you that goes from having a six in one thousand chance to a seven in one thousand chance so don't sweat about it too much you know much better to think about whether you've got good friends you know a beautiful book called friends by robin dunmar dunbar on the importance of friendships you know this is it's the most important thing you know obviously if we can be best friends with our partner our spouse and have that reciprocity of love in a relationship i think that's the most important thing but you know there's strong evolutionary reasons about why we are very relational as beings we 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 solve problems together that's why we work in teams we solve problems together and so our relationships i think are the most important thing we do in a thing i don't think there's enough attention to that you probably the go book on you're writing is about how to how to make happy teams how to build happy teams so its draft title at the moment is happiness is a serious business how to build happy successful teams they all have to be successful too we can't build happy unsuccessful teams that's not going to help anything at work so yeah and it's 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 both a how to and it's also an exploring of 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 leading a team being a team leader is difficult it's a difficult job we don't support team leaders nearly enough with the human relational side of their work we give them these targets on their delivery and what they're doing and we tell them to get on with it and then we squeeze them from above and then from below they're getting you know hassle from their team members because they're not happy whatever so they get really squeezed and I, I think how do we make the team leader job you know how do we help them be team leaders that are respected and loved by their team members and are delivering their targets and it's not an easy not an easy thing to do but it's possible and and, and the, book, the book yeah. will be available next year or <laughs> so i've set myself to write it by march so i guess it would come out at the end of next year okay. i'm going to release a little ebook probably in january about how to build happy teams which will be a sort of prelude of it and that will be available on our website so my company is called friday pulse fridaypulse.com because we ask people on friday how the week was and, and we measure and improve team happiness so we've already got some white papers on there but at the moment i'm working on a little ebook to, to be downloadable for january which will be part of the book but yeah, writing is a painful process for me. Writing a talk is a joy. Writing on paper is painful. I don't know how you are. But... Too. I'm writing my own book at the moment and on how to how business owners, business leaders can become more confident presenters. And yeah, so I can relate to that. It's 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 not an easy experience, not an easy yes. thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick, if anybody wants to connect with you, where do they find you? Yeah, so... Yeah, FridayPulse.com is my business, so you can find me that way. I have my own website, which is a bit out of date, but it's there, NickMarks.org. So Nick is no K, N-I-C-Marks.org. Uh, and then LinkedIn is the best place to find me. It's the only social I use. But again, if you spell Nick without a K and you put me in, you're going to find me straight away. And if you, as I said, if you want a copy of my TED book, I have it nicely in a PDF I can send people if they're interested in it. So just send me a message on LinkedIn or and i'll pop you a copy of it what's the most important thing if you think about everything we've talked about today if there's one thing you would like our audience to remember or take away from this conversation what is it i think if you would go back to giving a talk yeah i think have a very clear idea of what you want to deliver you know we can ramble it's very easy to talk it's very easy to be funny well it's not easy but a lot of people just are naturally funny they can tell jokes but have a clear thing you want to communicate. What do you want them to take away from your talk? You know, as in how do you want to help them to do something different after your talk? So I think it's having that clarity and and then feeling in service of the idea. I think that's where, you know, it's like, you know, I, I'm not very important. The idea is much more important than me. That's my philosophy, certainly. And as a presentation coach, I can tell you, Nick, I have, I was very happy to hear 
you experience the ins and outs of, of giving a TED talk, preparing for it, because you've prepared for it. You've done a lot. You went through a very good preparation. You said you work with a coach and also thinking about, you mentioned a couple of days before you added or you changed a line that wasn't there. So there was a lot of preparation rehearsing and that's what we need to do if we want to make an impact on a stage. Before we close, is there anything else, any final messages, final thoughts, maybe a question that you would have liked for me to ask and I haven't done it, anything at all that you'd like to mention before we close? No, I don't think so. I've really enjoyed talking about it and slightly reminiscing. It's nice to reminisce about it. It was, it was a peak experience in my life. Of course it was. And, uh, you know, and it's something I've, I genuinely feel happy with. And I, I know some other people who give them TED Talks that don't feel happy with their TED Talk. So, you know, I, I, I think the work I put in before was worth it because I, I ended up feeling something I was proud of. I think we should feel proud of our work. It's very good when we do. So there's lots of talks I've given, which I don't feel proud of, but that one. I've... <laughs> and talking about metrics, it's not the only, no, it's all, it's not the only indicator of whether or not a talk is successful, but more than two and a half million people viewed it. So congratulations again well done thank you and thank you very much again for your time for sharing your ideas your insights both from a communication perspective and in terms of happiness in general very interesting very insightful and all the very best let's keep in touch thanks very much indeed cheers if you enjoyed this episode of the ideas on stage podcast there are many more you might like so please subscribe leave us a review and tell us what you think you can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.